This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Hey you, thank you so much for downloading this latest episode of the Literary Treks podcast, episode number 272. We really love you for it. Thank you so, so much. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me and equally thankful is my co-host, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? Hey you. It's going well. <laughs> when you started off with the, hey, you, I had this flashback to this company I worked at years ago, and there was this girl that used to come up to me, and she would, like, tap me in the chest, and she'd go, hey, you, every time she saw me. And when you said that, it reminded me of that, hey, you. Oh, what was, are those good memories, I hope? Yeah, they were strange memories, yeah, <laughs> but not bad, <laughs> but they were strange, but at least you weren't poking me in the chest. No, I definitely wasn't doing that, but uh, yeah, so here we are once again to talk about Star Trek books and comics and all that good stuff, and uh, this episode, we're going to be continuing our discussion of the post-nemesis TNG continuity with the novel Star Trek The Next Generation Resistance by J.M. Dillard. But before we get to that, we do have a little bit of news to share. Uh, and the first news item that we want to share is uh, excellent news, something I've been waiting for for a while. We've gotten the cover for the next Star Trek Discovery novel, and that is The Enterprise War by John Jackson Miller coming out uh, at the end of July. So, uh, yeah, let's start with that. Bruce, what do you think of this cover? What are, you, what are your first impressions here? When I first saw it, I thought, oh, this is so cool because I can, you know, get a good look at the new version of the Enterprise. So that's where my eyes went because it's really the only thing on the cover. And I've heard some people complain online that, you know, some of the Discovery novel covers seem a little boring. They just feel like, you know, somebody photoshops, you know, a character on. In this case, oh, they just photoshop the Enterprise. And the way you look at the cover, it's going like up, like from bottom to the top of the cover, like swooshing up. And I mean, there isn't a whole lot there. There isn't much going on. But again, it's just I, I really dig this new Enterprise. 
<laughs> yeah, I kind of agree with you. I, I've seen some of those complaints online that it's too plain, it's too boring. Uh, but I actually really like this one. It's got this really uh, striking blue background with these, you know, rays coming down uh, and stars. And then like that that top view of the new Enterprise uh, front and center kind of thing. And I, I really like it because I think it's going to stand out on the shelf. I think it's going to be eye-catching. So uh, for that reason alone, I think it succeeds as a cover. And I, I have to be honest, I was completely expecting, oh, we'll just get a shot of Pike in his chair with his yellow uniform or something like that. Like just, you know, a publicity shot repurposed as a book cover like the previous ones have been. And, and I've liked the previous covers too, but... They've all been just publicity photos that have been, you know, photoshopped a bit. So it was kind of neat to see that this one was different. So yeah. I like it just for that. I was thinking about what it would be like to see Pike, Spock, number one, those actors as those characters on a cover of Discovery. That that would excite me, actually. Um, but seeing the mm -hmm. Enterprise on here is exciting to me too. But the thing is, it's kind of weird to think, okay, it says Star Trek Discovery, but the Enterprise is on the cover and it's about the Enterprise. So why are we calling it a Discovery novel? I mean, I get it. <laughs> it's fitting into, I guess, the Discovery series, but if the Discovery series is supposed to be in the same continuity and tie into the other series, they're all in the same universe. Why call it Discovery? Just call it Star Trek, the original series. Well, you know, what's funny is this is actually the only Star Trek Discovery novel to come out so far that actually takes place during the Star Trek Discovery television series. We're not still not going to see the Discovery, presumably, because it's going to be centered on what the Enterprise was doing. But it's it's made that baby step into the same time period as Discovery, other than I should say the framing story for uh, The Way to the Stars. But... It's, it is strange that every single Star Trek Discovery novel that has come out, the main story has not been about the Discovery, and this is going to continue that tradition. That is a good point. Unless there is a framing story in this one where Pike is telling the story to Burnham or Saru or whoever um, about what happened yeah. during that war period. But yeah, you're right. This takes place within that time frame. It's, it's developing a story that was mentioned or a time period that was mentioned in the Discovery TV series. Mm -hmm. Which I think, like, for the main action of the novel, that's definitely a first for these. So that's kind of cool. Uh, because we should say that this story is uh, supposed to tell basically what the Enterprise was up to during the first season of Discovery and the whole Klingon War and the reason why Pike and the Enterprise sat out that war and, and what they were occupied with at the time. So should be pretty cool. I'm definitely interested to find that out. Or it's boring because they were just sitting on the sidelines playing 3D chess and that's all that was happening. And it's just page after page just discussing what the next move was going to be and then what it actually was. <laughs> well, I really hope not, but uh, that I suppose <laughs> that is possible. <laughs> so do you put a stamp of your approval on this cover? I definitely do. I really, I, I like this cover. I think it's, it stands out and I think it's uh, different from the previous ones, which makes me happy. I give it my stamp also. U.S. stamps, Canadian stamps, whatever stamp, I'm putting my stamp on it. So. Yeah. Perfect. 
Well, there is uh, sadly another piece of news that we learned this week. And uh, at the time of recording this, uh, it was just a couple of days ago, uh, artist Keith Birdsong has passed away. He passed away on June 4th. And uh, if you don't know the name, you will probably, if you're listening to this podcast, definitely know his work. He uh, is a very prolific Star Trek artist and has done the covers of uh, many Star Trek novels, over 30 novels, actually, including uh, Sarek, uh, the novelization of All Good Things, Q Squared, and and the uh the novels that i really remember early on were the um the four invasion series novels they had the original tng ds9 voyager he did the the cover for those and they all came together to make a uh you know one big poster size cover basically and uh yeah you've definitely seen this man's work he has done so many uh pieces of star trek art outside the books as well and um tragically he did pass away just a couple of days ago on june 4th so a huge loss i think to the star trek community his uh, work has definitely inspired me a lot seeing it and and some of the amazing stuff he's been able to do with uh bringing these star trek characters characters to life in uh, artwork has been truly amazing so definitely missed yeah you know he's the only cover artist i actually know I can't name it. Like if you had asked me last week, name, uh, name artists that have done covers of Star Trek novels, his name would have been the only one that came up. And I'd have to sit here and really start to think long and hard if I know of others. And I'm sure I might, but he definitely would come to mind because when I first got into these novels, it was in the early nineties and going through the nineties, reading these books, a lot of these covers were by him. And I think the only reason I was familiar with his name is because he has such a unique signature on the covers. So Mm -hmm. in the feature today, you know, we're doing Star Trek, the next generation resistance and I'm holding the book. Now there's no mention of the cover artist. When I look at the cover and maybe there's something in the inside flap. Yeah. Tom Hallman is the covers, but there's no signature on the front, but I'm so used to seeing the bird song signature on those covers. And there were so many of them. And I really loved his covers that actually a few months ago, I was thinking about them and I was like, you know, I wonder what he's up to. I'd love to get him on the show sometime just to talk about his cover art. And then, yeah, I saw this news uh, the other day and it was just first, there was some confusion online, social media that he passed away or wait, maybe he hasn't, or he's getting close to or whatever. But yeah, as of time of this recording, we definitely know for sure he has passed away. And, uh, but I mean, his work lives on and not just on novels, but, uh, I think some posters and collecting plates, I've seen people post, uh, their plates online in celebration of his life. Mm -hmm. Every time you go to, uh, Star Trek Las Vegas, there's always a booth that has a whole bunch of his artwork there as well and poster sized stuff. And some of that stuff is just truly breathtaking. So, uh, definitely a huge talent and, and yeah, he's certainly made his mark on the Star Trek universe and like you, yeah, he floats right to the top of, uh, my mind when I think of Star Trek cover artists. Absolutely. So, uh, sad news, unfortunately. And, and, tragically young as well which is uh really sad so that's it's definitely a huge loss before we get to our feature in today's episode let's uh take a look at the babel conference over at facebook 
and take a look at some feedback from our episode two episodes ago, Literary Treks 270, Kirk is Dabbing Like a Warp 4 Looney. I love (laughs) love that. I love that title. (laughs) (laughs) So we got uh, not a lot of comments uh, on that week's episode, but we do have a few that we'd like to share. Uh, The first is from Vinnie Rose, who says, those comics are fun. Not good, mind you, but fun. (laughs) And yes, I definitely have to agree with that. Um, Not necessarily good, but they are a lot of fun to read. So thank you for that comment. And Karen Chaplis says, I love that illustration. And of course, it's the uh, cover art to our uh, episode of Larry Treks 270. And it's Spock coming out of the shuttlecraft and shooting at the entity or whatever around Starfleet officers. I mean, it's so classic. It's not from the comic. It's from the cover of a comic. But it's so classic, gold key, you know, 70s sci-fi art. And I mean, Spock has those ears that are like half a foot tall and the shuttlecraft's inexplicably red and the gun he's firing looks like something from a 1940s serial like ray gun, not a phaser and got these weird disco lights happening around Kirk. It's it's great. It's just terrific. I wasn't even sure if that was Kirk or not. (laughs) I think it's supposed to be Kirk. I could be wrong. I don't know. It might be. tell actually. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> is he dabbing? I can't tell. <laughs> it's like uh, he just finished dabbing and he's celebrating. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also have a comment from Justin Ozer who says, another fun discussion about the wild gold key comics. I think you're right, though, that overall the stories have gotten more serious. As for what the final truth is about, it's about life, the universe, and everything. Well, I mean... I agree. I think that story could have been really shortened to just a page that said 42, because uh, I probably would have understood that a little bit more than what we got. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that was a strange one for sure. (laughs) Definitely. Well, thank you guys so much for your comments. And just a reminder, find the thread for this week's episode and leave a comment. And we would love to read it on the uh, show for you. But in the meantime, what do you say we give you something to leave a comment about and pop over to the feature? As mentioned at the top of the show, today we are discussing Star Trek The Next Generation Resistance by J.M. Dillard. And this is continuing the Star Trek The Next Generation shared universe post-Nemesis continuity uh, following Star Trek Nemesis and trundling our way to destiny at some point so wait, wait, wait. so or, does that mean it's canon <laughs> oh bruce <laughs> <laughs> for the record no it is not canon it never has been it never will be but that doesn't mean we don't have some darn great stories in here to talk about and uh that's what we're going to do so this novel uh this we get another borg story And uh, that's pretty clear from the cover art. I actually want to talk about the cover art for a minute because I've always found this one really striking. It's uh, this kind of, we we see Captain Picard's face and it's kind of, we've got a bit of a close up on his eye and it's got this kind of star shape in his eye. It looks very technological, kind of like the Borg thing that erupts from his cheek in Star Trek First Contact. That's what it always kind of reminded me of. And I just, I love the cover of this novel because it just is so immediately striking. Yeah, it's it's almost like a, a 
painting that is kind of uh, smudged around his ear and out of focus in a little bit away on the left side. And it's got this kind of dreamy quality to that side. And then it's a little more pronounced as you come closer to his face. And yeah, that star in his eye. And in the background, it's just has a little green tint to it with some stars. And then, um, and then when you look at the spine, it's green and then has uh, that poster art again in a little square, which you don't see very often in Star Trek novels. There was a short run where they did some of that at mm-hmm. that time because this book came out what 2007 i think it was yeah mm-hmm. 2007 and this art was done as i mentioned earlier in the show but not here in the feature but i'll mention in case you skip the news but tom hallman is the cover artist and i'm not sure if tom hallman has done other covers for star trek so uh i almost want to start looking through see if i see something similar yeah, I'm not sure. I, I sad to say that cover artists is not something that I tend to pay a lot of attention to, um, especially in the more recent. You know, they're just kind of photoshopped type covers, uh, and that's not to say they're not art. Like, there's a lot of people doing some really interesting stuff in that medium. It's just you know when I think of cover art, I always think of those hand drawn ones from earlier years, and. Uh, Sometimes I'll find out that, oh, Doug Drexler did this CGI cover for this book. But other than that, I don't, you know, really pay attention to that. And it's something I might want to pay more attention to because there's some really cool covers out there. And this one in particular, I love because there's nothing on it that immediately says Borg really like uh, in clear terms. But just looking at it, you get like, oh, this is Borg. Like it feels very Borg. Plus you have the name resistance really kind of sells that as well, I guess. But it just, I I like that it communicates that without being really overt. And one of the things about this book cover is I'm, I feel like I've seen it so much because I bought this book when a bookstore was closing years ago and never got around to reading it. It's been on the shelf forever, but it's also been in my Goodreads uh, books that I want to read. So it has always been pretty prominent there for the last few years. And I kept seeing it. And I'm like, one day I'm going to read this one day. I'm going to read this one day. I'm going to read this. And now ladies and gentlemen, I have read it. So this is your first time reading it. It is. Oh, I hadn't realized that. Interesting. Yeah. Read- so the, um, yeah, the, so the, uh, death in winter and up through, I can't remember now, but I think greater than the sum, uh, is the first post TNG post nemesis tng book i read i skipped a few i never got to the first few hmm interesting okay i i read this one fairly shortly after it first came out way back when uh i skipped death in winter i don't actually know why i did but uh, yeah i don't know why i skipped those first few in the yeah post and i, I pretty much read them all through uh leading up all the way through destiny from this point, except I also skipped Q and a for some reason at the time, but I have since read it. I haven't read Q and a, Ooh, I'm excited for that one. We it's, we shouldn't talk about that. We're going to talk yeah. about resistance. No, no, no. I don't know why there's times just things in life come up. And when these books came out, there was probably a time where I wasn't reading as much. And then I just went to the next new one. And I thought, well, one day I'll go back to those others. And I didn't hmm. know when I would ever get back to them. And I thought, well, maybe I should get onto a podcast that talks about books and we'll schedule them and that will make me read them. That's what happened. Perfect. Well, I mean, I'm glad it all worked out that way. That's uh, it's rare that you set that goal for yourself and it just, you know, that's awesome. 
yes. When I saw some girl at the office with an iPod, I said, I'm going to create podcasts and talk about Star Trek novels. I knew it. That's, uh, that's brilliant. I, I like that. <laughs> well, um, as we mentioned, of course, this novel features the Borg. And in this novel, um, Picard once again begins to hear the Borg voice, the chatter in his head, uh, kind of like he did at the start of Star Trek First Contact. There's a scene very similar to that where he, you know, has a dream that there's Borg appliances erupting from his face, just like in First Contact. And he kind of comes to realize that they're, the Borg are in the Alpha Quadrant and they're planning something. And, they're, you know, he kind of pieces together that there's a dormant, huge Borg cube uh, getting ready to become active. And the drones aboard that ship are creating a new queen. And once they do that, they'll be in the position to uh, wreak havoc on the Alpha Quadrant. And not only that, their their goal this time doesn't seem to be assimilation, but revenge. So we have this really aggressive Borg uh, that Picard fears is going to, you know, decimate the Federation unless he can stop them or convince the Federation to stop them. Uh, so what did you think of this setup, this this idea that the Borg are out there and they're mad as hell? <laughs> I mean, I kind of liked it because, you know, you know, we've all heard it being discussed online and in, on podcasts and such where it's like, oh, I felt like the, you know, especially when they got to Voyager, they started using the Borg too much, blah, blah, blah. And at least it wasn't just the Borg going and we're trying to assimilate again. This time it was like, we want to just destroy Earth. Like it's, this isn't working. We're not going to assimilate them. Now it's just like, we just want to get rid of them. We just, so I like that premise because, okay, it makes sense that the Borg are giving up on assimilating and just wanting to destroy. So mm -hmm. I was okay with that premise. The way this book started off, as you mentioned, with the implants like popping out of Picard's face or whatever, when I first started reading this, I thought, wait, why are we retelling the story from First Contact? Like, I was a little confused. I'm like, is this a flashback to First Contact? It's really odd that we're starting a book the same way First Contact started off. So that mm -hmm. kind of confused me, which I, and of course it was clear that it wasn't that, but I also didn't understand why it went there. I just felt it was too repetitive. I mean, I know it was like a dream or whatever, but I just thought it just felt like it was just ripping off first contact to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very similar, right? And and that first scene in first contact just still sticks in my mind as one of the great moments in Star Trek when I was sitting in a theater just wowed by this and everyone in the theater jumped. We've seen it so many times now that we don't, but when that first happened, it popped out of his face. Everyone was like, <gasps> and it was truly terrifying. And this book, I feel goes to that well a few times where they borrow a lot of things to just kind of ooh, remember this feeling, remember what this was like. And, and I feel like that happens a few times in this book. Yeah. Cause this book very much feels like, Hey, remember first contact and how good that was. What if we went back to something like that where Picard is up against the Borg and mm. we're just going to like, do it, but instead of assimilation, they're going to conquer Earth and go. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. like okay, we'll we'll do this again. <laughs> Definitely. Well, so of course Picard wants to do something about the Borg, right? He he's convinced 
that the Borg are back and they're going to uh, unleash their plan. And so he contacts Starfleet, specifically Admiral Janeway, and, you know, informs her about what's going on and what he's seen and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, we kind of have to put ourselves in the perspective of another person in the Star Trek universe, because we know and love Captain Picard. And we know that he is for sure experiencing these things because we we've seen that we've seen him deal with that. But to an outsider, uh, they might be a lot more skeptical because, you know, Oh, you're hearing voices. Hmm. Okay. And, uh, he, you know, is able to convince Janeway that something's up, but doesn't really convince her of the urgency of, of going and confronting it right away. And she also has, you know, some concerns that, you know, if you go there unprepared, they can take the enterprise and, you know, that sort of thing. So she tells them to wait, she's going to send an expert and that expert is seven of nine and she's dispatching her in a shuttlecraft to rendezvous with the enterprise. But of course, Picard can't wait. So we're setting up again, something similar to first contact where you know, Picard's been ordered to stay in the neutral zone and stay away from the Borg and Picard defies those orders. And so in this novel, again, we've got him defying orders from Janeway and going and confronting the Borg. So is it just me or are, are there just a lot of parallels here that they're trying to kind of set up that same feeling? Yeah, lots of parallels. It does feel like a retelling of first contact in a sense. Um, and not that it's that it's not that it's that bad. It's just like, it just feels like we've kind of done this before. You know, this, this seems a little too familiar. Let's get to something that's going to make this feel different. And I was, I have to say, I was a little disappointed with Janeway because as much as the maverick that I think that she is from being out in the Delta quadrant for those seven years and confronting the Borg, when Picard tells her, Hey, there's a Borg cube. It's dormant right now, but we need to deal with it. And she says, don't do anything, Jean-Luc. I'm sending seven to nine. You just stay put. And he's like, we don't have time. She's like, just wait. And I'm just thinking, I think Janeway having dealt with the Borg would just be more like, okay, Jean-Luc, go for it. I'm still sending seven to nine or I'm coming with her, <laughs> you know, mm. like I, we're going to do this together, you know, or keep me informed, keep me in the loop. Don't, you know, like I would think she wouldn't be involved instead of just like, just sit back and wait. I'm glad you said that because, you know, even though I gave that spiel of like, well, we know Picard and we know he's telling the truth. I still feel like Janeway would have given him the benefit of the doubt and treated this as like actionable intelligence that, you know, he says there's a Borg cube and that we have very little time. I was kind of expecting like, okay, I'll mobilize a small fleet and send them your way. You get there and we'll have them rendezvous. Like, the Borg in the Alpha Quadrant is a big deal, <laughs> right, you know, like, right. and it feels like Starfleet through Janeway is kind of going like, okay, Jean-Luc, well, you know, okay, whatever you say, we'll send Seven of Nine. I'm, I'm sure it's fine. I just don't feel like that would be the response. And I feel like that was just kind of set up to give us like an us against them, like me versus the world. I have to take this on and nobody understands, you know, uh, where I feel like the story didn't really earn that maybe. 
You know, I think it would have worked better if it was a different admiral that didn't really trust Picard, wasn't sure if Picard is really in touch with himself. Like, you know, because we've seen in other novels where there's doubts about Picard because he was the cutest. And there's some trust issues with Picard. And when he calls Starfleet, and if he talked to some other admiral and said, look, the Borg are here, I can sense them, I can hear them, we don't have time, I can see there may be a certain admiral who's like, okay, this may be Jean-Luc taking things a little too far because of his history with them. And look, we're, we're going to send, a, we're going to send someone, we're going to send whatever, just hold tight, Picard, and then show a scene of that admiral talking to Janeway. And then Janeway saying to that admiral, no, we have got to move now. And this other admiral kind of arguing with her about it and her saying, look, if anybody needs to be sent over to help this, please, then if you're not going to do anything now, please send seven of nine or myself and seven of nine over there now. But we've got to do something, you know, Mm -hmm. I just feel like like Janeway just sitting back and just like, oh, Jean-Luc, come on, Uh, just hold tight. Don't worry. I don't think that's mm-hmm. true to her character because of her situations with the Borg. Yeah, it feels like, oh, Jean-Luc's being dramatic again. Right. You know, like, I, it just, yeah, it doesn't ring true. It doesn't really feel genuine. So, I, yeah, I felt like it was just kind of set up to to make it this, you know, oh, Starfleet doesn't believe me. I have to go it alone kind of thing, which uh, is a little bit frustrating. Or at least like have a scene that took place months ago between Jean-Luc and Catherine where he's exhibiting certain behaviors that she's not sure he's in touch with. So then when this event happens, she would be more of, okay, here we go again. I don't think he's in touch with reality. You Mm. know, let me send seven of nine and we'll check this out. Then I could buy it, but we don't have that. We don't have yeah. that history. <laughs> no, definitely. And uh, we, we see this same sentiment played out through another character as well. And this is a new addition to the Enterprise crew because, you know, following Nemesis and uh, the previous novel, Death in Winter, you know, Deanna Troy is off on the Titan and she needs a replacement. So we have this new character introduced, Counselor Talana. Uh, who's a Vulcan counselor. She's recently been assigned to the Enterprise E. And it's kind of through her that we get like the immediate um, in-your-face disbelief of Picard and what he's going through. And I, I found this an interesting dynamic because besides her, pretty much everyone around him is, you know, supporting him and they're the old guard right you have Jordy and and beverly and wharf and of course they're going to absolutely 100 percent trust picard and whatever he says a because they they've known him for so long and b because they've seen it firsthand and how effective he is when dealing with this sort of thing so it was interesting to have talana there and i remember reading this years ago and i only remember a few things before reading it this time around and uh one was uh a spoiler that we'll get into later and the other one was i really hated talana she was oh i hated her (laughs) so i'm curious what were your thoughts about counselor talana you mean dr pulaski um (laughs) oh that didn't come to mind when i read it but as you were talking about it i thought you know here's a new crew member 
that comes in there and is criticizing things, and especially criticizing Jean-Luc's decisions. And it made me think, well, that's kind of what set people off about Dr. Pulaski and her comments about data. Um, hmm, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it until you were talking, but it's kind of like that because it's hard to like this character because as she's coming to join this crew that we all know and love, she's kind of against our captain. Every decision he's making, she's questioning and not just questioning, but she's telling him he's wrong and he's doing the wrong thing. Again, now, Going back to the Janeway thing, if this character was brought on board and it was mentioned that she had served the last couple of years with Admiral Janeway and she contacted Janeway and said, this guy is kind of off his rocker. I don't think he's, you know, really in touch with reality because of experience with his experiences with the Borg. Then it would make sense for Janeway to question Picard at that point. That would work for me better too on the Janeway side of things. But in this case, I like the character in the fact that she's a counselor and a Vulcan, because when you go to a counselor, most of the time it's about your emotions or dealing with your emotions. So how ironic it is that a Vulcan is the person you go to, to figure out how to deal with, emotional issues Mm -hmm. from a non-emotional person. So I love that dynamic that you could play with this character and do something even more with her in other books, because I find it very interesting. I understand her points with Picard because she's not used to serving with him. And some of the decisions seem a little rash, irrational in a lot of ways, but um, yeah, it was hard to warm up to her because every chapter it was nope, 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 nope to Picard. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like uh, kind of actually very similar to Pulaski. The writer kind of just painted her into this corner and it makes it really hard to like her. I do have to say I liked her character a lot better this time around than I remember liking her last time uh, because, you know, she it, it makes sense really because she hasn't been there and she hasn't seen Picard and and you're right. Some of the decisions seem very rash and not well thought out. So I, I appreciated her, um, resistance uh, to Picard's <laughs> orders go. and, and thoughts more so than Janeway's, uh, which is interesting. And I'm just now realizing that there's more to the title of this novel than I thought in the first place. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it makes sense that she has these thoughts and feelings about Picard's style of command because the rest of the crew knows that they can trust him. She doesn't have that relationship with him. So she Mm -hmm. does have to question those things. The only thing I think would made this character work better is to give her some other scenes, maybe with another character where she's a little more likable maybe, and is, you know, hitting it off with someone, whether it's Beverly or anybody, I, just, just something that makes her feel a little more, hmm, human. Yeah. <laughs> She's very much painted as the outsider. Like yeah. it's pointed out several times that everyone's with Picard. Oh, except Talana. She's the lone holdout kind of thing. Um, she does have scenes with another person, interestingly enough, but sadly comes across kind of just as unlikable in those scenes as well. And that's uh, the current temporary first officer of the Enterprise, Worf. And uh, very early in the novel, Picard offers Worf the position as a permanent first officer. 
and he turns it down. He feels that he doesn't deserve that position. And specifically because of the actions that he took in the Deep Space Nine episode, Change of Heart, where, you know, he was on a mission with Jadzia Dax and she became uh, mortally wounded, almost mortally wounded, I should say. And um, he had to, make, had to make the decision to continue with the mission to extract this spy that could have helped them end the war quickly or rescue Jadzia and take her for medical attention. And he chose Jadzia. And at the end of that episode, famously, Captain Sisko told him, you'll probably never make captain now because of this decision. And Worf's really taken that to heart and feels that he doesn't deserve the promotion to first officer. And Counselor Talana, it turns out, very much agrees with that and, you know, has studied Worf's record and knows about this top secret mission because she had clearance at one point and uh, very much agrees that Worf doesn't deserve that position. But at the same time, and I found this strange, did you like pick up that they're attracted to each other or something? Like yes. the author's really kind of setting up like... She's like, oh, this this wharf person is unruly and undisciplined, and oh, he's pretty handsome. And Worf is like, she's very beautiful. It's <laughs> like, this seems very weird to me. What's going on here? <laughs> I kind of like that actually, because <laughs> you know everything about her was not agreeing to what Picard's doing, not agreeing to Worf having that position, but at least she was having some interest in him but not expressing it and he's not expressing it in her. So it added a little more dimension to her and a little more something going on with these characters, because if anything, because she wasn't talking to him and they were kind of standoffish with each other, I thought, well, was there a past relationship between them that kind of went sour or it kind of created a little bit of mystery there in the beginning for me. I kind of liked that whole story with these two though. I, it wasn't a big part of the book, but I did wonder through the book until we got it revealed, you know, why weren't they talking to each other? We got it revealed later as to, yeah, like you said, because of what um, happened with the Borg and her serving and all that. But, um, but the thing that did bother me wasn't Talana, it was Worf, because I didn't feel that this was really that consistent with the continuity of the previous novels, because he was supposed to go to Titan as first officer, but mm -hmm. then ended up with Enterprise. So I thought it was a done deal that he was the first officer. And now it's, well, he's temporary first officer as he thinks about it. And now he doesn't want to do it. And I was just like, that doesn't really seem consistent with the other novels. I'm okay with that, but it just kind of like threw me for a loop at first. Mm -hmm. I had the same thought because when I, when I read this the first time, I hadn't read the A Time To series, but this time around the final book in that series, he was going to go to Titan as the first officer. And, uh, you know, he seemed pretty eager about it as far as I remember. So it did seem like a very strange character shift for him as well. So yeah, that, that did enter my mind this time around as well. And it's like, why isn't he a permanent first officer? Are they just trying him out? Like, I didn't really understand why this was like a temporary position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if uh, maybe he had already been. No, I don't think he'd already been offered the position. He was just, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the deal was there, but uh, um, yeah. 
what do you say? I, th- I think this might be a good point to get into spoilers because there's resolutions to a bunch of the stuff that we've talked about that, you know, we kind of have to avoid until we give that warning. So I'm, I'm going to say spoilers. Uh, if you haven't read this novel uh, and you don't want to know how everything wraps up, you might want to give it a pause here and go read the book and come back in 10 minutes once you've done that and uh, listen to the rest of the episode. Or go watch First Contact. <laughs> Ouch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to Talana, we do have some other secondary characters uh, that come up in the course of this novel. When the Enterprise first arrives at the uh, Borg cube, because of course Picard's defying Janeway's orders and taking them there, uh, Lieutenant Battaglia leads an away team onto the Borg cube. And the whole goal basically is to kill the Borg queen. That's their, their be all and end all goal here. If they can do that, the Borg will all shut down and everything will be saved. Uh, so he leads the away team to the Borg cube. Now there's a, there's a romantic relationship going on between him and the con officer, Lieutenant Sarah Nave. So in Lieutenant Sarah Nave, she used to be a security officer as well. Uh, and that'll come into play a little bit later, but they, they've been romantically involved and, you know, they have this, uh, heartfelt, uh, goodbye because it's a very risky mission. So, you know, I think we all pretty much know what's going to happen. Uh, the, uh, the away mission takes a turn for the worse and three, uh, the, it's a four man team and the three other officers are all killed by the Borg and their remains are sent back to the Enterprise. It's kind of this grisly scene. But Battaglia doesn't return and is assimilated by the Borg, which is kind of his, you know, greatest nightmare kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, there's this message left behind for Sarah Nave in his quarters, and it's all very, you know, touching and all this sort of thing. And, you know, she has this resolve that she's going to avenge his assimilation, basically, and try and rescue him. And so she becomes the uh, new security chief because of her previous experience. She's the most experienced on the ship kind of thing and uh, hopes to lead a mission back to the Borg uh, ship to recover Leo and kill the Borg queen. So what did you think of this whole subplot with these characters? I mean, it was okay. I, I mean, I can understand why the author put this in here because it can't just be about Picard's revenge. I think she wanted another character to play with to uh, also act in revenge of the Borg in some manner. Um, it, it wasn't all that surprising or interesting to me. It was okay. Uh, I mean, I did like her relationship with Leo, even though it was brief. I did like her wanting to go to the Borg and try to save him. And she becomes security chief so she can make sure that she's leading the next away mission as they get to the Borg and, uh, all the dealings she had on the ship. So no, I mean, I liked her. I liked the story. It was, it was just, yeah, it was just fine. It was, it wasn't anything that really wowed me. I I don't know. It's like, I guess it's just, it was just, it was just okay. (laughs) What'd you think? I I feel very similarly. I, it felt, uh, I hate to say this, like I don't, I'm not a writer, so I don't know 
the work that goes into writing a novel, but it all felt very predictable to me. Like I, I felt like, okay, you know, we've got this heartfelt goodbye. He's going to be assimilated because that's his greatest fear. And, you know, there's going to be, she's going to try and rescue him and she's not going to be able to, and, you know, she's going to sacrifice herself and him. And like that, that was in the, when we, he was first beaming over and then she, after she said she wanted to lead an away team, that's, I was like, that's all going to happen. And that's exactly what happened every step along the way. And, and again, like I said, I don't want to belittle any, any writer's work here, but it just felt like you almost expect a twist to that. And it just, it never happened. It was just all, that's exactly what happened all the way down the line. That's it. That's exactly it. Because when he says his goodbyes to her and he says, you know, if I don't come back, there's a message for me in my quarters. My thought is, okay, yeah, he'll probably die and she'll go in the quarters. I'm like, but you know what? No, that, you know, that's too predictable. I was like, okay, so he's probably not going to die or he's not going to get assimilated. So what are they going to do with him? And I thought this is going to be interesting, but then he does get basically assimilated and she does go to his quarters. It's like, okay, well, yeah, like you said, I could see this a mile away. What I really did like about this part of the story is, wow, he goes on to this away team mission that his other security officers I mean, they all got killed. They sent those three back to the Enterprise. They didn't assimilate them. They sent them mm-hmm. back to the Enterprise, kept him, because I think they wanted to keep somebody from Starfleet so they can use his knowledge when they assimilate him. But they sent the other three back to say, look, we're not interested in assimilating humans and your crew and Earth. We're just sending them back to say, we're just here to kill and conquer. And that was the message in that. And I thought that was really cool because we always see the Borg assimilating and not just, you know, go out and just, we're going to kill everybody and we're going to send the bodies back to you because we don't need them. We don't even want them. So I thought Mm -hmm. that was cool. I I did think that was interesting and like a new take on the Borg. At the same time, I was also like, that's really short-sighted of the Borg. Like towards the end, when they're at, when the, Starfleet, you know, when Picard and his crew are attacking, they mention that like, oh, I think there's only these drones left and only these drones left and we'll be able to, sure would have been nice if they had a few extra drones lying around to throw against them, right? Like, that seemed a little short-sighted on their part. But I did appreciate definitely that, you know, their MO is definitely different this time around. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. And when they, they first boarded the Borg ship, you know, they were told that, hey, the Borg aren't going to do anything to you. You know, when you first get on board, they're going to basically ignore you. But they didn't. You know, mm-hmm. they're just like, you know, they're just coming straight after you. As soon as you get on there, they're going to come for you. They're, go- they're out to kill. Yeah. There, there, there was no like, oh, they don't see us as a threat. They just immediately attacked them. That was definitely interesting, too. Interesting, but not real clever. Yeah. Yeah, and and that was another one of those moments, too, where, you know, they were getting the briefing and being told, like, they won't go after you immediately, you'll have a bit of time. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I I don't think they will. (laughs) You know, because uh, it was just something that was set up a little bit too perfectly, if that makes sense. Yeah. So this initial attack led by Bataglia obviously fails. And, uh, the away team, like we said, is, is wiped out 
And Picard has a backup idea that he's going to resume his role as Locutus of Borg in order to get close enough to the queen to kill her. What did you think of this plan? Because I have some thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, I was just kind of like, really? I think because it was just too quick, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of sacrifice and taking chances of just going straight to being Locutus to go attack the queen. I would think Picard would be afraid. And I mean, it's one thing to be afraid and, and just try to overcome your fears to do something. But I would think he would be afraid that this plan would more than likely not work. And he doesn't even want to be Locutus again. That I would want to see them maybe attempt some other things first and nothing seems to work. And there's some kind of clue or something, some revelation that comes to them where they say it almost looks like the only way we can do this is if one of us were a Borg, but still could have, you know, be conscious of who we are. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, Jean-Luc. Like I picture Beverly, like, you know what, Jean-Luc, there is one other way, but I mean, we wouldn't want to go there. And he's like, I need to become you lacutus again like build to that but it just seems Mm. so like he shows up and says okay we found the borg so i need to become lacutus and beverly you have to make sure that i'm conscious and aware of what i am doing that's the only way we're going to do this it's like what (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it came around very quickly and i remember reading this and thinking this was like the very end of the novel that was like the hail mary pass that was going to do it and then reading this time around i was like oh it's 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 like almost exactly the halfway point in the novel when he becomes Locutus again. And I was like, this seems really strange because there's no like real distinct purpose for it. Like it's to get him close to the Borg queen to kill her. But that's exactly the same thing the away team was doing. They're just trying it a different way kind of thing. I would have appreciated it more if it was like there was some thing they realized that like if i become locutus i can sow confusion among the borg and command a group of them for a period of time or something like that right because my mind was flashing back to the episode i borg when they were interrogating the borg that would come to be known as hugh and he says i am locutus of borg you will answer my questions and Hugh's kind of confused like locutus what what i don't so, you know, I was expecting like, oh, the the figure of Locutus is going to um, do something to the Borg or there's some reason that, you know, he has to do this because it'll do A, B and C. But the plan literally just is I'll get close to the Borg Queen to kill her. And I just it seemed like too quick a leap to say, like, I must become Locutus again just for that reason. It felt like there needed to be more there, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I, I'm picking up on a theme that keeps coming up in our discussions of this, where a lot of this book just seems to be at times too quick and too shallow. There's mm-hmm. just not the depth. There's not the background. There's not the buildup. There's just, it just is. And we're just going to the next thing and the next thing. It's very linear. There's no B storylines, there's no, you know, any flashbacks or history. It's just, you know, beat after beat after beat. And it's like, okay, now we're at the Borg cube. 
okay, Jean-Luc's going to become Lacutus and he's going to go after the Borg Queen. Boom. That's quick. And there's no real reasoning as to why that's the final decision or what other possibilities there could be. I mean, I just read another book that we're going to read on an upcoming literary tracks where there's so much debate between the crew of, should we do this or what about this or whatever this? And they come to a final conclusion after a while, but this was just a decision made by Picard. Well, I have to go dress up for the Halloween party and be the cutest. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that because it just, it felt like Locutus cosplay. Like it was, it was like they got the idea in their head, wouldn't it be cool if Picard became Locutus again? And then right. like, okay, let's let's figure out how to make that happen. Right. You know, and without real thought given to it. Like, wouldn't it be cool if Picard confronted the Borg Queen again, but as Locutus? Oh, that's a cool image. Let's let's do that. And and you know, without really putting in what I think would be the necessary work to make that make sense. Right. Make it make sense to the point that it's like, this really is the only option, you know, it's because at surface level with these characters, you would think this would be the last thing that Picard would really want to do. I mean, we Mm -hmm. established in the beginning of this book, he has, you know, nightmares. He has horrid memories of the situation of being Locutus. He killed innocent Starfleet crew people on other vessels. And th- I mean, all the things that he did is Locutus. You want to go back there again, even though you've got some kind of technology that Beverly can give you that you can still remember. You know, but, you know, you're taking a huge risk that you could go being back to being the evil vampire again that you used to be. And it just, it almost has to be like, almost like a last resort. Like, Mm -hmm. and that's the thing about the next generation, another star Trek series and things. It's like, there's always that discussion. What are the alternatives? What is the best direction? It's not just going with your gut feeling or whatever. It's like you evaluate these decisions and this wasn't evaluated. It was just come up with spur of the moment and accepted. And know what you know what I'm going to say, Counselor Talana, she is smart because <laughs> she's like, "Are you crazy?" <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, yes. And I mean, that's kind of eventually what does happen is Beverly explores alternatives and and sciences the crap out of it and figures something out and comes up, comes up with a solution. And she could have done that earlier if she wasn't busy putting Picard in surgery to turn him into Locutus. Like it just is such a spur of the moment, quick decision. And I get that there's a time factor, but it just seems very rushed. And like they're jumping into it, you know, without really thinking things through. And what happens is what everyone fears would happen. Basically Picard delivers himself to the Borg and now they have Picard again. Oh, they didn't see that coming, did they? Oh, what were the possibilities that could have happened? (laughs) Oh, man. And and yeah, it's just, you know, he fails and is now completely Borg because, you know, they extract the little chip that's keeping his brain from being connected to the collective and, and beam that back to the Enterprise. And now Picard's just another drone as Locutus. Locutus 2.0. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So 
basically at this point, Worf has to lead an away team now to do basically what the first away team was going to try to do, which is kill the Borg Queen. Like, we're, it's just like, this didn't work, this didn't work, this didn't work. Let's just keep doing the same thing again and again and again, and eventually it's going to work. The reason it works this time, though, is what I was talking about before with Crusher coming up with this um, alternate way of, of disabling the Borg Queen. So she realizes that, you know, whenever we see the Borg Queen, she's kind of glistening, like she's got this uh, substance on her or something. And she knows from like the insect world, you know, when uh, a, a queen bee dies, they take a drone and apply this royal jelly, <laughs> it's called, <laughs> to the drone and turn it into a queen. And it's like this feminizing agent. And the bee becomes the new queen and all the drones follow her. And she realizes the Borg are exactly the same as bees, apparently. <laughs> and the drones, this is all new. They secrete this weird jelly, this goop that turns another drone into a queen, which seemed very odd to me. Um, <laughs> but she's able to kind of come up with a counter to this that, uh, you know, she intends to, again you know, a mission of revenge. She's going to go on the away team and deliver it herself to the Borg queen as revenge for taking Jean-Luc from her, which, you know, man, I don't remember all the next generation people being so bent on vengeance. This seems brand new to me. Yeah. I actually like this part of the story because I thought it was interesting it's kind of odd, but it's also interesting to me. It's, it's an interesting take on that, that, you know, when you watch first contact and Voyager and you see the Borg queen, she is kind of, you know, shimmering kind of wet gooey looking in a sense. And it, you know, this concept of the Royal jelly from the other Borg, and she was just a regular Borg drone, that was converted into this because they're they're talking how once you become a Borg, it you're not really male or female anymore. But then you can take one of them, or the drones can take one of themselves and create into a female Borg queen. And it was just an interesting concept to me. And it's like you said, like the bees and how that worked. And this is like a hive mind, so. A little odd, a little silly in some ways, but also I just thought it was an interesting concept, an interesting play on the Borg. So not great, but definitely of interest to me. So I think that was the probably the most interesting part of this book to me. Mm -hmm. I, I'll agree that it's interesting. I, I do appreciate that it's, you know, the answer comes from experimentation and science and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, ah, that's very Star Trek. That's cool. Um it seems weird the explanation of Borg drones being completely genderless because this is post seven of nine on Voyager. And I thought that kind of threw that idea out the window, but I don't well, know. Well, they're genderless. I mean, they're still the, I mean, they've taken people of course, who are male and female. So they still appear male. They still appear female, but they're, they've, they've lost their gender matrix or dna i don't know whatever you know because they said something about when they were scanning the cube they would be able to identify where the queen was because she would be the only female mm -hmm. and that rubbed me the wrong way at first because i so what all the drones are male 
they don't assimilate women. We know they assimilate women, but then when they were saying that you can't detect the genders, I'm like, well, that's okay. That would make sense. Why you, the the only female you would detect would be the queen because the rest have no gender. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It doesn't make sense in a way, but <laughs> I, I get where it's going. Yeah, I, I got it as as a concept. I'm like, okay, and I mean, I think uh, Riker in Q Who when they first meet the Borg says something like the Borg don't appear to have gender or something like that. Um, I just feel like that's an idea they've kind of gotten away from recently, but yeah, yeah, I I can kind of see it. They, they hand wave it enough here that I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. (laughs) So yeah, this, you know, more broadly, it was kind of weird. The Borg seemed much more insect like than before with the, you know, Usually we think of the Borg solving everything with technology, right? And not really relying on a lot of biological stuff to do things. I mean, they are a combination of both, but it feels like they try and minimize biology and elevate technology. And this one, it it seemed odd that they had this kind of biological process, which might actually, I guess, be a technological process for all I know that they're creating this, this substance that, that creates the queen. And, you know, this is something that's been going on ever since first contact introduced the idea of a Borg queen, which I know a lot of fans are like, ah, that I hate that. I don't like that, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it's Canon. We got to live with that. So, you know, that that's kind of, uh, it's kind of been a process since then, but it just seemed like a really strange direction to take the Borg. Um, but I do like that, you know, there's some creativity used in coming up with it and comparing them to bees and that sort of thing. I thought it was kind of neat. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a neat concept. Yeah. So we get, uh, the resolution to a lot of the storylines. So, um, Sarah Nave, who's the uh, head of the security contingent on this away team, they get separated from the main characters and uh, at one point she finds Leo Battaglia and he's partially assimilated and they get into, uh, you know, a fight. She's trying to, you know, rescue him, but it's obvious that it's not going to be possible. So she throws herself with him over the the balcony. There's this huge uh, chasm, not chasm, but like the huge open area in the middle of the board ship. And I yeah. guess they have gravity at the bottom of that or something. So <laughs> they fall and, and, you know, she ends up rescuing him in quotes by, you know, um, making sure that he doesn't live on as a Borg drone, you know, frees him from that. And they, they die together and there's only one survivor of the security contingent and uh, meanwhile, in the Borg Queen's chamber, we get the whole thing. Crusher administers the um, there's, you know, she's trapped inside the force field with her and uh, administers the hypo spray. And and at the last second, you know, the saw from this Borg drone is cutting into Worf's chest and it hits a rib. And um, it, oh, yeah, and the Borg drone that's doing this, I should say, is Locutus and Worf's about to, you know, kill Locutus and take himself with him kind of thing. But at the last second, the thing works and Locutus shuts down and all the board shut down and we get that great ending and Worf realizes, no, you know what? I should be the first officer because I did a very Klingon thing and Picard needs a Klingon. (laughs) So everything's wrapped up in a nice big bow there. 
Yeah, because there was something earlier in the book where Beverly was telling Worf, I can't remember what the situation was, but I remember her saying, just be Klingon. Mm-hmm. Well, because Worf's whole problem was that he followed his heart with, with Jadzia. And if, you know, he leads the away team to rescue Picard and kill the Borg Queen, he's following his heart again. Because what Picard ordered him to do was to take the Enterprise to the fleet and, you know, meet up with Seven of Nine and, and coordinate and do all that. But Worf's like, no, I'm going to follow my heart and do this because Beverly says, be a Klingon for Picard, <laughs> follow your heart. And uh, yeah, he decides that uh, insubordination and uh, disobeying a direct order is what Picard needs as a first officer. Sorry, that was really sarcastic. I didn't mean that to be that sarcastic. <laughs> right. But what you said is exactly what's in the book. Yeah. It's, Pretty much. It's like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was fine. That, yeah. I just remember when we got to the point where he was like, I am ready to be first officer because I'm reminded just to be Klingon. I was like, wait, what? Oh, yeah. Beverly <laughs> said something about that. I'm like, I don't really, I had to reread that little part again because it just, didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, but okay. Now nah, Picard should have been like, no, Wolf, you turned it down. Geordi, you're my first officer. <laughs> <laughs> or Geordi becomes first officer and then Worf kills him and says, now I'm first officer. I got really jealous and I, <laughs> I followed my Klingon heart and killed him to advance in position. And Beverly's like, no, I didn't. Oh, my God. (laughs) What have I done? (laughs) And Talana's like, these people are crazy. Yeah. I from Talana's perspective, I'd be like, I don't know if I want to be on this ship. Like even putting aside the joking part at the end there, like these people are nuts. And they've it's almost they've been together for so long that it's like. Oh, Picard can defy the Admiral's orders and we all trust him. Oh, Worf can defy Picard's orders because he knows what's best. Talana should be like, what the hell is going on? Like, you're all insubordinate, uh, disregarding all the rules, and I'm out of (laughs) here. Right. (laughs) You know, Talana is the normal one. That's why she didn't seem to fit well with the rest of the crew and for us because she's just normal. Everybody else is messed up. She's like the Frank Grimes of uh, of Star Trek, you know, like because all the Simpsons characters are so ridiculous and over the top. And they had that one episode where the normal guy moves to Springfield and gets a job at the Springfield power plant and just ends up dying <laughs> because he can't believe how ridiculous everybody is. He's like, oh, I'm Homer Simpson. I can grab the high voltage thing without. And then he dies. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, that's it. This is a yeah. Simpsons novel. Exactly. Talana is the Frank Grimes of Star Trek. (laughs) So I want to know from you now, are there any final thoughts that you have on Resistance and maybe what kind of rating you would give this novel? I have no thoughts. I never have thoughts. No, I'm kidding. No. um, So, you know, uh, J.M. Dillard wrote this novel and I've read so many of her other books. As a matter of fact, um, because we're in the post-Nemesis era, I am reading uh, Star Trek Nemesis, 
which she wrote the novelization to. I'm just dabbling in it every once in a while when I have time. I'm halfway through the book, and at least I feel that she was giving uh, more depth to the characters than what we could get on screen. So I really liked what she was bringing to the novelization. In this case, I don't feel like I was getting that same depth with the decisions of these characters. I didn't feel that this novel was all that clever. It It's a fun Borg romp, if you can have one. <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> I mean, I would say I would recommend this book to someone who isn't maybe a big Star Trek fan or doesn't even read Star Trek novels, but likes the Borg and likes the next generation and wants to read like a fun Star Trek Borg book. I would say, sure, go ahead and read this because it's a quick read. It's like 306 pages. It's not as long as some of the other uh, more recent novels. And it's, but it's just not all that clever and it's a little silly at times. And I don't really understand why the decisions are being made. There's not enough context to it. So it's not one of my favorites of hers, but it was a quick read and I kind of had fun with it. And so fun is a good part of it, but I really wasn't challenged with it or surprised by anything. So I would give this book uh, three attempts on the Borg out of five. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, there are a lot of things that the characters do in this book that I don't really understand the the reasons behind that decision. Uh, the big one, of course, being Picard turning into Locutus, which I'm still convinced is just the product of, ooh, I think this would be a cool idea. Let's throw it in there without a lot of thought given to like the weight of that and, and how big a deal that is and how it should have a really good reason behind it. There's a lot of things that just don't quite ring true for me as far as how things proceed in this book. And it just does feel, I think you put it best when you said like a leads to B leads to C leads to D. It's like, we have a plot outline here and we need to get to the next part and we need to get to the next part without really filling in the in between parts and linking them all together to make it make a lot of sense. And also in the final chapter, Jordy says here, here, and it's spelled H-E-R-E-H-E-R-E. And it should be H-E-A-R. So, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a pet peeve of mine, but that doesn't really impact the book. But uh, here, here. I just wanted to point that out because, you know, grumble. But, uh, I, I, yeah, this wasn't the best book. I, I don't think it necessarily holds up. Uh, it's okay, but... I think there's a lot more potential here that is a bit wasted with this story, unfortunately. And um, so that does knock it down a couple of points for me. So I'm going to have to give this one, I think, three Borg nightmares out of five. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. That sounds good. And just one thought I had about the book, since this is the first time I've read this, but I've read the, the books that come after this that deal with the Borg we are going to get more Borg. And so now I'm interested that when we get to those books, see how much this book plays into those storylines, if at all. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's going to add anything to this experience of this book, but um, I'm just curious to see how they're going to revisit the whole idea that he became Lucutus again. Interesting. 
All right. Well, I won't spoil anything. <laughs> I know some things, but yeah. So you've inspired me to be Lacutus for my next cosplay, which I never Ooh, do cosplay, exciting. but that will be my first one. I'll be Lacutus. I feel like that's an ambitious first cosplay. <laughs> I wonder if this is Picard's first cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Uh, yeah. It probably was. You know, maybe in the new Picard series, he'll become Lucutus again for the third time. Ooh, interesting. So let me ask you this real quick. Uh, since we're recording this before the new Picard series ever premiered. So do you want to see the Borg have any influence on the story of Star Trek Picard? That's a tough question because... It's such a huge part of Picard's life and it was such a monumental thing that like I feel like it's a huge part of who he is and who he has become. I'm not eager for them to do the Borg again unless they have a really good idea for it. So like actually showing the Borg and and going that route if they have you know, what might be a really excellent idea. Okay. But I don't want them to like, Ooh, wouldn't it be cool to bring in the Borg again? You know, I don't want them to do that, <laughs> yeah. but reference and that kind of thing. I think it, if done well, it could be really good because I think it plays such a huge role in what makes Picard who he is. Yeah. I uh, know. I'm, I'm with you 100%. I feel the same way. I don't want to really see the Borg. I don't, you know, maybe if he's still coming to grips with his past with the Borg, but I, I don't want it to have any, be part of a major storyline. It's just, you know, it was something that he still may have to come to grips with, what he experienced, but that would be it. Well, it's been fun talking about Borg-induced trauma today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Track FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. But just really in a most passionate way he could, in a compassionate manner, he, he goes to him, you are not alone. We're here to help you to do this together. And that means so much to me. Like, you know, I guess being being the youngest kid in the family, so I kind of think, you know, that like you, you don't want to be left out. So, you know, that feeling where no one's listening to you. But to see Picard really reach out to him and he wants to help him with all his might. But, but there's just that there's that divide with him not being able to speak or hear melodic tricks eventually you know it, it the screen goes to white and then you cut to uh, ripley's ship that, that's been derelict for 57 years and there's this very lonesome sounding string melody that's playing and i don't think it's a direct lift but it's it's certainly very very similar to a piece by um rm kachaturian uh, it's from a piece, a suite of music called the Gain Ballet Suite, and it's an adagio. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. No, that we say goodbye to everybody this season. Like, anyone who walked off the bridge, like, if you had to go take a leak, they would, like, all stand up and say goodbye. It was, like, pathetic. The Orb. Maybe we all need to be comfortable with that discomfort of hearing something that's different from what we think. So instead of attacking, instead of pushing back immediately, we could just let it go. We could say nothing or we could respond with, hmm, that's interesting. That's not how I see it, but 
I didn't think about it that way either. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a Borg drone, be sure to hit, I'm sorry, if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well, because you can find all of our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, royal jelly, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. Oh, I'm told the royal jelly is not available. Sorry about that. It does require a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And we got some iTunes reviews, Dan. Check it out. And both of them are five stars. Oh, that's excellent. I'm very excited. One is from your mom and the other is from mine. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We've got one by Casey Lee 4TS. I'm not sure how to say that, so I'm sorry. Um, And she says, or he says, and they say, I would rate this podcast five out of five podcast green rooms complete with a Dayton Ward and a wet bar. I absolutely love the author interviews, the honest reviews, and even the touches on the comics, which I don't read. If you love Star Trek books, why wouldn't you listen to this podcast? I've been reading Treklet since I was a kid. My first was Perchance to Dream, TNG number 19 by Howard Weinstein. Not one likely to be reviewed on this podcast, which is probably fine given all the amazing new Treklet coming out these days. Keep up the great work. Live long and read on. Uh, thank you so much for that. And actually, Perchance to Dream was one of the first ones that I remember reading as well, and I still have my copy from way back when as well. With the, I think it's uh, Data, Troy, and a Shuttlecraft on the cover, if I remember correctly. And I, I think I remember liking that book. I don't remember a lot about it, but I do remember enjoying it. Well, for me, I never read that one yet, but one day I will. So, well, we got another review it says insightful and delightful five stars. And this review comes from Kistodian. And thank you for that review. And it says one of the best podcasts offered on Trek FM without a doubt, lots of source material to work with. And the hosts are great. Well, Kistodia, you must have been listening to some of the earlier episodes before I came <laughs> on the show. <laughs> no, thanks. Thanks a lot. I mean, I we have to agree with you. This is one of the best, not just on Trek FM, but any Star Trek podcast out there because, you know, we dig into the books. Not just any Star Trek podcast. Any podcast, any, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> or better than radio or anything on TV or in the movies. This is the best yet. 
Oh man, don't listen to This American Life or Radio Lab. Those are for chumps. We're the No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that comment. That's really awesome to hear. I really appreciate that. Well, and we'd love to hear your comments on iTunes and as we mentioned before, but we'd also like to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there's many ways you can do that. And that's in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We also have a group on Goodreads.com, and there we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up in future shows. Plus, we also have great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Your royal jelly is in the mail. I'm sorry. I can't say that with a straight face. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Bruce, when you're not defying the orders of your captain and or admiral and leading a mission to a Borg cube, where can we find you? You can find me at the movies sneaking around because I'm defying everything at work to get out and go to the movies to watch a Star Trek movie and... The Admiral has no idea that I'm doing that. That sounds like the kind of insubordination I want to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I'm not doing that, I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And I am here on the network on Live from the Edge when new Discovery episodes come out. The next night, Brandy Jacola and I are doing a live show and you can chat with us and all that stuff. And I'm doing Star Wars stuff on the Star Wars Report podcast and of course i'm always in the babel conference but when i'm in the babel conference sometimes i notice dan is there other times maybe he's not there when i'm there so i just wonder dan when you're not in the babel conference you must be getting lathered up with royal jelly right so (laughs) when you're not getting lathered up in royal jelly where can people find you Well, luckily, I have not turned into a Borg queen yet with the feminizing royal jelly. Um, I think they might be... I think this might be grape jelly. They they really messed up somewhere because this is not right. Uh, I I can't say I'm unhappy about that, though. The alternative is not something that I want to contemplate. Um, but yeah, when I'm not getting lathered up apparently with grape jelly, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, where I have a YouTube channel dedicated primarily to Star Trek. Really excited for that Picard show coming soon. And you can also find me on Facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.
can no longer eat grape jelly, and it was my favorite. 